This morning's scripture comes from John 18, verses 33 through 38. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask me this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Feast of Christ the King. Today is Christ the King Sunday. It is the last Sunday in the liturgical calendar. If you all grew up Methodist or maybe even a little more traditional in background, you're probably familiar with the liturgical calendar, which begins next week with Advent. Interestingly, the liturgical calendar begins with a fast. We have two great fasts in our year, the season of Advent, four weeks leading up to the Christmas tide, and then we have the season of Lent, which is roughly six weeks leading up to Easter. And so our, our kind of pattern is to have a fast, and then to have a feast, and then to have a season of growing. And so the colors are purple or blue for the fast seasons, and then white for the feast days, and then green for the growing seasons that follow when we really dig into Scripture and look at how we're growing. And, and it all culminates with today, the day when the church celebrates Christ as King. And I love this passage today from the book of John with Christ's interaction back and forth with Pilate. If you go back and read the same interaction according to Matthew or Luke, you'll find they're a little bit different. I'm going to say a little more concrete. They're a little more on the ground, feet on the ground, just the facts, only the facts. You know what I mean? John, it seems like, is trying to answer a little bit bigger question. It's obvious that Christ's kingdom is a different kind of kingdom, right? It's obvious that Christ's kingdom redefines what kingdom is. The question is, how? And this is important for us because I think it is natural for all of us 
to make the exact same mistakes that the apostles were making all the way up to the night that Jesus was betrayed when they were asking him, is now the time? Like, is now when the backup arrives, you know, when the cavalry shows up and we roll in and we take over? It is natural for us to want Jesus to be that kind of king, right? to be like our earthly kings, to be like Caesars and Pharaohs and the kings of Babylon and whoever else who, who took over by force. We still, we still paint pictures of Jesus that way, right? Coming in on a horse, right? Ready to, ready to take names, if you will. <laughs> That's not what we have today. What we have instead is Jesus, I think, and I love the way John does this because I think John is answering this bigger question. It's a, it's a more cosmic kind of question. What does Jesus' kingdom look like? And it's different than the kingdoms of the world. And there are four things that Jesus says in this conversation with Pilate that I think really draw it out. And before I even get to them, let me just say, did anyone else hear Jesus' conversation with Pilate with just a hint of snark in his voice? When you, the problem with reading the text is you don't know the inflection, you know? But as I read this and I see Jesus answering questions with questions, doesn't it make you just wish you had been there just to hear a little bit? Is, is there just a little bit of... Like when Jesus asked Pilate, did you come up with that question on your own? Or did someone else tell you to ask that question, right? Isn't that just a little bit of a... A gut punch at authority? Oh, it makes me so happy. Okay, so here's the, here are four ways that I think Jesus' kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world, how Christ's kingdom redefines kingdom. The first one is Christ's kingdom is in the world, not from it. And so you see him answering, my kingdom is not of this world. So what I believe that means is that the values of the kingdom of God do not match the values that, that we would seek after here. The methods of the kingdom of God, taking things by force and the like, are not the methods of the world. I just said that backwards, but you know what I meant. The methods of the world, taking things by force, are not the methods of the kingdom of God. The origin of Jesus' kingdom is not from here. Now, I grew up in a place called Dadeville, and when I graduated high school, I graduated with 63 students in my class. Everybody knew everybody, everybody was related to everybody, and we lived in a community that was fortunate enough to have Lake Martin in it. And when I was young, regular folks from Dadeville could afford homes on the lake, and a lot of my friends did. I mean. My aunt was a teacher and her husband was a truck driver and to this day, they still own a lake house. They bought it back when you could afford a lake house. Now, you all know that's not the case. And so now we have a lot of people that come to Dadeville who are not from around here, if you know what I mean. And we have antennas tuned to recognize when someone ain't from around here. And usually what that means is <laughs> they have a little bit different way of seeing the world. They have a little bit different set of values than folks who grew up in a place like Dadeville. Now, we use that to, usually to talk down about people, 
But in the case of God's kingdom, we are called to have a different set of values. I believe what it means to be in the world, but not from the world, is to, is to be very present and aware of the needs and the hurts and the brokenness and the pain in the world around us and to come to those problems with a different set of solutions. Sometimes I think we can be uh, in the world and a little too much from the world, if you know what I mean, and I will not expound on that because you guys can probably do that on your own. But sometimes I think we're not from the world, but we're also not very in the world and aware of the needs and hurts of the world. That tends to be what I think Christians get wrong more often than not, and I'll give you a great example. I uh, took a group of kids to CFAT, which is a mission organization, a United Methodist mission organization in Lineville, Alabama. Anyone ever been with CFAT? They take short-term missions to Ecuador and Bolivia and a few other places. And I was there, and they have a third world village built down in the woods. And part of the week-long camp experience for kids is, is you go down into the third world village and you live there for about 36 hours, a day and a half, you know, something like that. And while you're there, there, you don't eat very well. You have to boil all of your water out of a creek in a coffee can over a fire so it's smoky and hot. It's July in Alabama, so you're miserable. You sleep on the ground. You're hungry. And then they started a rumor around the village that the American missionaries were coming, and they were going to serve us lunch. And we all started getting excited. And noon came, and they were late. And 1 o'clock came, and they were still late. And then they finally set up, right? And they had this big spread set out for us. And they invited us to come and eat lunch. But before we were allowed to eat, they sat us down in the field in the sun in order to preach the gospel to us. Never in my life have I wanted to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ less than I did mm. in that moment. Mm. Here's the simple truth, friends. You cannot preach to an empty stomach. If you don't meet people's physical needs where they are, whatever felt needs they have, I can promise you they will not hear your spiritual solutions. And I think United Methodists do a pretty good job getting this right, meeting people where they are, solving problems like water and food and other basic needs, and then coming alongside with grace. So Christ's kingdom is in the world, not of it. The next thing that Jesus says to Pilate that I think is, is worth noting is he says, if it were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. As it stands, Christ's kingdom is nonviolent. You'll remember it's just a few verses earlier in this chapter when they arrested Jesus, and what did Peter do? Pulled out his sword, right? Pulled out a sword, cut someone's ear off. And what's the thing Jesus said to him? Put that thing away. That is not how we do things here. I think Christians have gotten this wrong a lot, and I think we can admit that and we can repent of it from the Crusades to the Spanish Inquisition to the Salem witch trials to the arguments and conversations about who's in and who's out even to this day. And it's still just as painful. And I think in most cases, people do it with good intentions, 
because they feel like they need to defend God in the same way that Peter pulled his sword in order to defend Jesus. And let me just say to you guys, never are we more hurtful than we, when we think we're defending God. Humans can do the worst awful things to each other if we believe we're defending God. And I've seen folks in church do it. So, Christ's kingdom is non-violent. Put away your sword. The next thing that I, I noted in this text is Pilate is asking him, you know, so you are a king, he says. And Jesus answered, well, you say that I'm a king. For this, that I, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world. I'm looking at that line because it's a little bit confusing. When he says, for this I was born, is he referring to that I'm a king? I was born to be a king, and I came into the world in order to be a king? Or is it the next thing, and that is to testify to the truth? But if, if you go back and you look at what John is doing in his book, you realize that he's building an argument about who Jesus is that's a little bit bigger than the way that Matthew does it. John opens his book with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing has been made that was not made through him. Jesus existed before and will exist later. John is creating an argument that we begin to see Jesus in a much bigger, more cosmic kind of scope, that Jesus is God, in fact. And he states the purpose for Jesus coming in a verse that you all have printed on a bumper sticker on your car or something like that somewhere, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But do you know the next part of that verse? God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And I think that's the purpose Jesus is talking about here, that Christ's kingdom came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Have you guys ever uh, seen the bullhorn guy that stands on college campuses and yells at the students and calls them sinners and, and worse? Have y'all ever seen that guy? Or maybe he's at a political rally or wherever. No one? No one's ever seen Bullhorn Guy? Uh, I mean, if you go to Auburn today, I'm pretty sure you could probably find him, uh, or Alabama for that matter, or it, any major college campus is going to have Bullhorn Guy, maybe more so at Auburn today than other days. But he's the guy yelling at people to condemn them. And again, I think it is with good intent. I think it is with the intent to lead people to to repentance, but, but I feel again like if you don't lead with grace that you miss this. I feel like some pastors, you know, I see the TikTok clips and I see the short clips of pastors who, who are just saying mean, awful things, and I think, wow, they must have woke up that morning thinking that their job is to condemn the world and not to save it. And it's, it seems obvious to me that it's the exact opposite way around. And if we're going to be kingdom citizens, that we ought to take up the mantle of Christ and lead with grace and finish with grace. And 
We talk about this in Methodist churches all the time. We use words like prevenient and sanctification and things like that, right? Which no one knows what they mean and no one uses those words in real life. But the idea is that before you know anything, God's with you. And when you realize some stuff, God's still with you. And when you make changes in your life and repent, God's with you then too. And God's going to be with you all the way through until you're on to perfection. And then guess what? After that as well. That God's grace is with you every step of the way, wherever you are in life, as you grow, as you make mistakes, as you repent, as you learn how to be someone who's a productive, fruitful member of society, God's grace is with you. Christ's kingdom, his reign, is not to condemn, but to save. And that brings me to one more thing that I I thought is worth pointing out. And that's the last half of that sentence, that Jesus came to testify to the truth. Christ's kingdom testifies to the truth. Uh, Some of y'all are doing a a Sunday school study with a book that has a foreword in it by Max Dupree. Max Dupree is the one who said the first rule of a leader is to define reality. And that's a hard thing sometimes. I think the United Methodist Church in this way was really forward-thinking 300 years ago when the West was being won, right? There was a problem, and that was there weren't enough clergy to go around to serve the sacraments, and people were moving faster than the church could keep up. And so John Wesley and all the guys were like, you know what we should do? Hop on horses and just go out there and ride circuits, right? Get in someone's town. If they offer you a living room, great. If not, meet in the town square or wherever you happen to meet. His brother wrote songs that were to common tunes that people knew, so they were contemporary, they were relevant, they, they had a lot of meaning to them, and they were like, we're going to go where the people are, we're going to be forward-thinking with our ministry, and that was incredible. I don't think itinerancy or any of the other institutions that we have in the United Methodist Church have really been looked at under the same scrutiny in in quite some time. In fact, I used to have a professor in seminary, and this was 20 years ago, and and he said, um, the United Methodist Church is poised. If 1957 rolls around again, we are going to be on the cutting edge of ministry. We, y'all, we are ready. When 57 circles back around, we're going to be right on the forefront of ministry. The reality is, for well, since the late 60s, the United Methodist Church and almost every major denomination in the country has been in some kind of slow decline. And I think leaders often, instead of defining that reality and pointing it out, sometimes prefer to stick our heads in the sand and pretend things are not happening the way that they actually are happening. And if you'll allow me, that is one of my biggest frustrations. And I'm very thankful for you all because I came in in my first month and I I felt an urgent need from the very moment I got here to just say some things that, that I think were obvious truths that were happening, like the sale of the Restore building, like finances and things like that. And even though I didn't have the relational capital to be saying some of the things that I was saying, you all gave me a lot of grace to say them anyway. And so let me say one more thing about that. 
We announced last week that we do have a contract on Restore again that, that could close as soon as mid-February. I'm familiar enough with real estate to know that nothing ever goes the way it's supposed to go. So it might be March or whenever, but the point is we have a contract. We didn't give a lot of details, but I would like to give you one detail, and that is that we have an option for leaseback for two years. Now, I think that is a phenomenal opportunity for us but I have a big fear about that. If we go into this without some clarity about what's real and what's true, then it would be very easy for us to put our heads in the sand right now and to punt, right? To procrastinate, to not face the reality that we don't own that building anymore because we get to be there two more years. And my fear with the people who primarily worship over there is that they will not go through the grieving process of losing that space. And the sooner we can go through that process, the sooner we can heal and we can begin, we can begin growing and moving forward. My fear for people who primarily worship on this side of campus is that we won't consider how difficult it's going to be to make changes to this physical space or to our time slots or any other changes in programming that we need to make in order to accommodate a whole other worship service moving over here. And so while the two-year leaseback is a phenomenal blessing and we're going to utilize a good bit of it, if not all of it, I don't want us to get into the situation where we're able to say, oh, let's not, let's not address some of the harder issues in the room and then, and then we find ourselves in a much more difficult spot later. So friends, we find ourselves here as members, as citizens of a kingdom that has a very different value system than this world. Who's not from this world, who doesn't violently take things the way other kingdoms in this world do that has come to save and offer grace, not to condemn and, and to testify to the truth. And let me say one more thing about testifying to the truth. As I said, John's been building an argument here. One of the highlights of that argument falls in chapter 14. And it's when he's telling his disciples that he's gonna go before them. This is one of the passion predictions. He said, I'm gonna go ahead of you and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna prepare a place for you, right? Y'all know this passage. You've heard it at a funeral before, I'm sure. In my, house is, in my, in my father's house are many rooms, right? Y'all know that one. And one of the disciples said, how will we know how to get there? We don't know the way. And what did Jesus respond? I am the way and the truth and the life. Christ's kingdom is here to testify to the truth, and that truth is more than just being aware to the reality of the world around us. It is pointing to a person, and that is Jesus himself, and his way and his life, which gives us our way and our life and our truth. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for, for this church for the ministry that they do, for the ways that we're making a difference in this community, for your kingdom. And God, I ask you to always, always measure our values against yours, 
to measure our methods against yours, and whatever we do, to always keep our eye on Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.